0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report. I'm Diane Rebecca, here on WMCK.FM Internet Radio, bringing you another show on consumer issues. If you are a first-time listener, that's what we do here. This is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc., Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at 6 p.m., and Thursday at 9 a.m. There's also podcasts of these shows available on wmck.fm slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. So if you miss our regularly scheduled shows, you can catch those podcasts on any of those forums. Well, we deal with consumer issues, as I said, and if you have any ideas of any products or services you would like to hear on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you have any questions or comments of any products or services that you hear on the show, you are welcome to email me at consumerreviewreport@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at ConsumerReviewReport and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So today's show is going to be on malls and where are they going Um, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, malls were on the way out. And I'll be talking a little bit about local malls, um, not just malls in general, although we'll touch on that because we've got some audio from some video uh, from CNBC, Why U.S. Malls Are Disappearing. We're also going to hear from The Economist, the future of shopping, what's in store, and then uh, the future of shopping, how COVID has changed, what and how we buy, and that is posted by Michael McQueen. So we'll be hearing all this, but I wanted to touch a little bit on local malls. Um, We've had the Westmoreland Mall, we have the Well, we had the Century Three Mall. I think that's closed now. Um, But long before these other malls, the first mall that we've seen close in the... um, in this area, anyways, a long time ago was the Eastland Mall, right? And and that's been closed for, I guess, maybe a decade or so? Um, For more than a decade, probably. Uh, So... Oh, yeah, it it, it was uh, closed for good in 2005. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you've been hearing maybe on our local news here on Tube City WMCK-FM Internet Radio that, you know, Christian Kiliceney has been updating us on what's going on with that Eastland Mall uh, property and that they are building a new warehouse. Uh, speculative... Uh, tenant is amazon.com but that's never been confirmed but uh you know for more since 2005 we've had no bites on anybody buying that property ever since it closed and now it's good news because if amazon.com is going to build that facility that means jobs in the area and maybe restaurants and, you know, businesses, etc. And that, that, that's really good news. So uh, thank you to Christian Kelachenyi for updating us on what's going on with that. But in the meantime, we still are, uh, aren't going to have any more shopping malls, you know, because it seems like, you know, people are buying more and more online. And then when COVID-19 hit, they already, the malls were already on the decline before that happened. I can't even imagine where they are now. But we'll touch a little bit about that. But I wanted to talk about the Eastland Mall first. Um, And this was uh, an article posted in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. When was this? December 23rd, 2020. Uh, they go on to say, and this was uh Mark Balco who wrote this. The old Eastland Mall property, one-time shopping mecca featuring stores like Gimbel's, J.C. Penney, and Wander Sales, has been vacant for more than a decade. Oh, uh, um, and um. At one time, Eastland, first a shopping plaza and then a mall, was a thriving commercial complex with numerous stores. But it fell on hard times with the demise of the steel industry and competition from malls like Monroe- Monroeville and Century 3 in West Mifflin. And, you know, I used to our public library, the North for Sales Public Library, used to be um, in the... <laughs> in the Eastland Mall. I, I remember going there as a kid and picking out books. Uh, so that was fun. Now our North Versailles library has m- since moved to the, munici- or next to the municipal building, actually. So, um, you know, I remember going there, and it had uh, salons, and it had everything that your normal mall would have. But, again, uh, because of competition from other malls, um, you know it it declined and finally was closed now they say the eastam mall closed for good in 2005 and the 50 to 60 acre site has been empty for more than 10 years and so it goes on to say that now uh, action is being uh, brought up there by you know people wanting to build the warehouse and everything like that but that that's just an example of the way malls have been declining in in the years now I thought Eastland Mall had closed earlier than that but I'm guessing that is not the case it was only 2005 which was not that long ago so um yeah I mean that Uh, and you know so the decline of malls have been going on for quite some time even before the COVID-19 pandemic and so there's speculation on what what's going to happen like what are these malls going to have to do to survive right um here's another article that was in November 2 2020 uh Two mall owners, including owner of Monroeville and Westmoreland Malls, filed for bankruptcy. Now, this is after the COVID, right? So we'll be talking about that later. But I want to go ahead and air the audio from CNBC, why U.S. malls are disappearing. So let's go ahead and see what they have to say about that.
1: Shopping malls in the U.S. were once known for their massive department stores, endless fast food courts and as a Friday night hangout for teens. But with the rise of online retailers and the demise of the department store, it is a challenging time to be a mall owner. In November 2020, two mall owners, CBL and Associates and Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection after facing increased pressure due to COVID-19. And according to a 2020 study, 25% of U.S. malls are expected to close permanently within the next five years.
2: I think COVID really accelerated trends that were already at play prior to the pandemic. It was retailers closing stores, retail bankruptcies, retailers were looking for ways to renegotiate leases or or pay less in rent.
3: There are going to be malls that fail and they're going to be vacant spaces. What happens to them? into the future. I just know in the Syracuse area, we have one and the county just purchased it. I don't know what the plans are, but it's a lot of of empty space and a lot of parking spaces sitting there doing nothing.
1: Prior to COVID-19, with consumers craving experiences over traditional brick and mortar retail shopping, malls were forced to pivot, offering everything from fine dining to indoor ski slopes. But the pandemic has exacerbated the challenges at malls as social distancing has placed restrictions on stores, movie theaters and restaurants.
4: You will see more malls close. You'll see more shopping centers closed. But what you'll see is the winners continue to emerge.
1: Malls are also a huge tax driver for the communities they serve and employ a lot of people locally. So what will become of malls in America after the pandemic ends? Malls in the U.S. took root at the end of World War II alongside the growth of the suburbs. In the 1950s, a booming economy helped a large segment of the population increase their prosperity, allowing many Americans to purchase a new home and car. Aided by a series of government initiatives like the Veterans Administration Home Loan Program and the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, a significant slice of the country was turning their back on cities and heading to the suburbs. Austrian-born architect Victor Gruen, the man who many credit with later helping to provide those newly minted suburbanites with a place to mingle and shop, saw an opportunity. Gruen emigrated to the U.S. following Germany's 1938 annexation of Austria. Once in the U.S., he pushed himself in the world of shop design by refurbishing retailers, including at least one store on New York's Fifth Avenue. In 1954, Gruen's design of the Northland Center outside of Detroit, Michigan, debuted, making it one of the largest open-air shopping facilities in the U.S. But Gruen, opposed to the country's growing reliance on the automobile, wanted to create an atmosphere similar to his native Vienna, one of streets sprinkled with cafes, restaurants, and commerce. In 1956, his design of the Southdale Shopping Center opened in Edina, Minnesota. The fully enclosed mall had a two level design featuring 72 stores and anchored by two major department stores. The space also had 5000 parking spaces and central air conditioning. The modern mall was born.
3: You'd load up in a station wagon and and you drive to the mall and everybody in the family would get that one thing they needed while the family was there.
1: More than 40,000 people attended Southdale's opening day. The venue was largely considered a success and was soon replicated across the country. By 1960, there were 4,500 large shopping centers in the U.S. By 1987, malls and shopping complexes accounted for over 50 percent of all U.S. retail sales, and they were becoming part of pop culture, too, used as a backdrop for movies like Back to the Future, Mall Rats and Terminator 2, and even as a springboard for musical acts. And malls were getting bigger. In 1992, the Mall of America, the largest mall in the U.S. opened, adding attractions like roller coasters and an aquarium. But the explosion of new construction was beginning to weigh on some locations.
3: From about 1975 to 2016, retail space capacity, in many cases in malls, multiplied by four times the rate of population growth in the United States. So in 2016, every single person in the United States had 24.6
1: or so square feet of retail space that could just be theirs. The rise of big box stores like Walmart discount retailers like HomeGoods and the transition to e-commerce weighed on malls, too.
2: This has been the narrative for years now that we really got to a point where we're overbuilt. We have too much retail space uh, in the country. Now that retailers are growing more of their business online, inevitably, that means you know they don't need as many stores. So we, we've seen those store closures.
1: By 2017, there were roughly 1,200 indoor shopping malls in the U.S.
4: And yet, if you look at retail pre and post the credit crisis before the credit crisis, people used to walk around in T-shirts that say, I way overpaid for this T-shirt. Suddenly, after the credit crisis, they were all going for these things, the phones, you know, spending thousands of dollars on a phone that they used to get for free. So the point is that people changed their shopping habits and what needed to happen for the malls is that they needed to evolve as well.
1: According to a 2020 IBIS World Industry Report, the shopping mall management industry in the U.S. is an $18.3 billion business and includes companies like Simon Property Group, Brookfield Property Partners, and Macerich. In general, landlords like Simon make their money from rental income and property management fees. Of the roughly 1,100 malls in the U.S., about 250 are considered Class A malls, the top performers that bring in the most sales per square foot. About 380 are considered B-malls, a little more than 300 are categorized as C-malls, and the remainder are D-quality or lower that could be on their way out of existence. Like a number of their retail tenants, the coronavirus pandemic has had a devastating impact on U.S. malls. CBL and Associates has a portfolio of about 100 properties across 26 states, including a number of B and C-rated malls. The company said With tenants not paying rent and others delaying payment, it was forced to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in November 2020. Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust, which owns and operates over 22 million square feet of retail space in the eastern half of the U.S., filed for bankruptcy protection that same day. Simon Property Group, the biggest mall owner in the country and the largest operator of A-rated malls, including the King of Prussia in Pennsylvania and Roosevelt Field in New York, also saw a steep drop in revenue after some retailers skipped out on rent payments. In the fourth quarter of 2020, the company had total revenue of $1.1 billion, down 24% from the previous year. But a healthy balance sheet and a portfolio of desirable locations helped Simon fight back
2: retailers deemed non-essential, their stores were forced to shut. And a lot of retailers thought, okay, well, I can't pay rent or I'm not going to pay rent if I'm not operating this store. And so these mall owners like Simon, like Mace Ridge, you know, they still have obligations on their end to meet. They have bills to pay. They have loans that you know are potentially maturing soon and debts to pay off. And it, it really became a problem as retailers like Gap uh, said, you know, we're not going to pay rent or we can't pay rent right now.
1: In June 2020, Simon Property Group sued one of its biggest tenants, apparel retailer Gap, for failing to pay more than $65 million in rent and other charges. The company also went on the offensive, buying distressed and struggling retailers. In February 2020, Simon, apparel licensing firm Authentic Brands and fellow mall owner Brookfield acquired Forever 21 out of bankruptcy for about $81 million. In August 2020, Simon and Authentic Brands bought men's suit maker Brooks Brothers out of bankruptcy for $325 million. In that same month, the pair acquired denim maker Lucky Brand for $140 million. And in December 2020, the company partnered with Brookfield again to purchase J.C. Penney out of bankruptcy for an estimated $800 million. In Simon placed a big bet on the future of luxury malls, too. In December 2020, the company acquired an 80% interest in rival high-end mall owner Taubman Center. Taubman owns two dozen malls, including a handful in Asia, that have stores like Tiffany, Gucci and Prada.
4: But unfortunately, there are a lot of centers that don't fit that high profile and that have lost their competitive edge. The thing about Simon is they've been really focused on maintaining it, and that's both been through a combination of uh, culling the lower productive centers, as well as making sure that they keep investing in their top centers to ensure that those centers remain dominant in their respective trade areas.
1: While malls in the U.S. were struggling and shutting down prior to COVID-19, according to an August 2020 report by CoreSite Research, the pandemic has accelerated that trend. The research group said that an estimated 25 percent of U.S. malls could close over the next three to five years. Some experts think that number could go even higher.
2: I think everyone agrees that we will get to a point where there are fewer malls in America. You know, some experts have pegged that we have roughly 1,100 malls today. Maybe we only need 25 percent of those. We're already seeing it's fascinating The you know, the stronger getting stronger and their vacancy rate is, you know, in is very low, right, it's single digit. And the reason for that is because the tenants are realizing where the traffic is and they are leaving their traditional, let's just say, mall locations and moving into, you know, stronger malls, whether it be A, A plus.
1: And according to analysts, the locations likely to survive are those well-capitalized, A-rated malls that offer more than your traditional shopping experience. The Phipps Plaza Mall in Atlanta, run by Simon Property Group, houses brands like Saks Fifth Avenue and Tiffany's. The mall is opening a Nobu hotel and restaurant in a 90,000-square-foot lifetime athletic center and a 13-story Class A office building. The Northgate Mall in Seattle, also run by the group, has shops like Nordstrom Rack and is planned to launch an NHL Seattle corporate complex with three ice skating rinks 1,200 luxury multifamily residences in hotels.
4: It's not just, hey, we're a mall and that and all we do is offer mall product, right? It's no, we're a retail center, we're a dominant part of the community. How can we make sure we get more than our fair share of the commerce that's in that market? And that's why you see them branching into restaurants, uh, adding things like hotels, self-storage, apartments, uh, office, other uses to the mall.
2: A lot of these malls, as they're finding new uses and, and a way to repurpose them, it's going to be case by case. I think you have to go into the town, and that's what a lot of these mall owners are doing right now, and seeing what the town needs. You know, is it uh, a medical office building or a school potentially, or a church? Uh, more, yeah, more office space, or maybe a new residential community.
1: According to analysts, other ways malls could remain relevant is by transitioning to essential services that provide steady cash flow and stable occupancy in areas like healthcare and grocery stores. Last mile fulfillment centers could be an option for some, too. According to an August 2020 news report, mall owner Simon Property Group was in talks with Amazon about potentially turning some of its former Sears and JCPenney locations into warehouses. A potential obstacle is the locations may need to be rezoned by local governments for industrial use, and top performing malls have seen a glimmer of good news, too. According to Placer.ai, while mall visits in the best performing malls plummeted in the spring of 2020, they climbed over the summer and into the early fall. A December rebound to the mall was led by
4: holiday shoppers. The issues facing the malls and retail really are not tenant driven, they're capital driven. Malls, like fashion, are very expensive. It, you know, you got to spend a lot to look good. Uh, and certainly when you look at malls, if you don't have the capital to make sure that your, uh, your facilities and, and your, your offering and just the building appeal isn't top tier, you start to lag. And then that affects your ability to lease. And at some point it becomes sort of a, a downward spiral that's hard to get out of.
0: All right, so that uh, gives you an idea of what's going on in the mall community uh, nowadays, right? And they did off they did um, mention uh, CBL, who owns Monroeville Mall in Monroeville and Westmoreland Mall in Greensburg, and they also mentioned Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust. Now those two went and filed for bankruptcy. This was written in November second, twenty twenty. Uh, America's ailing malls suffered a pair of body blows. By the way, this uh, was in the Bloomberg News um, over the uh, over that weekend, I guess November second, twenty twenty, as two major landlords followed their ever-growing list of bankrupt tenants into Chapter Eleven protection. Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust and CBL and Associates Properties, Inc. sought protection from creditors, citing pandemic-induced pressures on their tenants and in turn themselves. Together, the two REITs account for some 87 million square feet of real estate across the U.S., according to court papers. And that's in addition to, well, actually that includes the, uh, for CBL, uh, Murrowville Mall and Westmoreland Mall. The pandemic worsened an already dire situation for brick-and-mortar retailers with a steady stream of chains falling victim as their customers shifted to online shopping. JCPenney Company, J. Crew Group, and the owner of Ann Taylor are among the dozens of chains that have sought court protection since COVID 19 lockdowns throttled in store shopping this year. A Chapter 11 filing doesn't necessarily mean the malls are closing. Instead, it gives their owners time to work out a plan to turn the business around and repay creditors. The mall owners drummed up support from creditors for restructuring plans prior to their bankruptcy filings, possibly shortening their trips through bankruptcy. Uh, the pre uh, PREIT's plan would pending uh, uh would pending court approval push out debt maturities and bring in 150 million dollars of additional capital CBL's plan would slash debt by 1.5 billion dollars and also extend certain maturities so that's uh kind of what they're struggling with now be- because the covid-19 um put additional uh, money pressures on these malls. So why don't we go to our next audio uh, posted by The Economist. It's called The Future of Shopping. What's in store? So let's take a listen to that. All right, so we're having a little bit of technical difficulties here. I should have started playing these before I started the show, so
5: here we go. Do you get a buzz out of buying something? A little tingle of excitement? It feels good, doesn't it? That's your brain producing dopamine. It's the same rush you get from chocolate or sex. During lockdown, people were increasingly forced to rely on the internet to get their retail dopamine hits. In fact, over $4 trillion was spent buying stuff online in 2020, almost a third more than the year before. Shopping is going through a radical shift right now, and the pandemic has sped it up. Retailers have been forced to adapt and innovate, driving this revolution, you, or to be more specific, your data. Here's how. If you went shopping in the 16th century, you'd get personalised service.
6: So, for example, if you wanted to buy your suit of armour, you would go to an armourer who would knock it up to your specifications.
5: But bespoke services came with a premium price tag. Then came the industrial revolution, with its big factories, assembly lines and automation. Mass production made goods cheaper, but a lot less personalized. And distribution was tricky. Products had to be taken from factories to what was essentially a small warehouse near where the customers lived. Basically, a shop.
7: The only way you could buy was through these shops. Uh, and you had very little choice, actually. You had very few shops near you. And if you wanted something, you had to go. and Your choice was between one of those shops.
5: Fast forward to the advent of superstores and out-of-town malls, and these choices grew, but everything changed when the internet came along.
6: Suddenly, the shopper has more choice than ever, and it's really up to the producer and the retailer to offer the consumer what they want, when they want it.
5: With more choice came more power for the consumer.
7: 30 years ago, we in the brands used to define the brand ourselves and the product.
5: Glossy ads like these have pushed products to consumers for decades.
7: And the consumers used to, like so many Pavlov's dogs, they used to come and buy
5: But the internet has put consumers in the driving seat, calling the shots on what's cool and what's not through reviews, social media posts and influencers. Leading the way in this retail revolution is China.
2: This is Gutian. She's a huge
5: live streaming star.
2: And now I have 1.8 million followers on red and they are just like my best friend.
5: But unlike live streaming in the West, which is used mostly for entertainment or gaming, Gu Tian vlogs to flog, selling thousands of beauty products to her 1.8 million social media followers. She's one of thousands of influencers, also known as key opinion leaders. Oh my God! Selling anything from lipsticks to food and even plants. (laughs) Live streaming selling has helped to make China the world leader in e-commerce. It's forecast that in 2021, half of everything bought in China will be bought online.
2: For Gen Z and millennial like me, most of them prefer shopping online than going to a physical store because of larger range of choices and lower price.
7: The Chinese internet market is uh, very, very highly developed. The scale of the market is over two trillion dollars worth of, of consumption online. They have something called Singles Day, where they do they do billions of dollars worth of transactions in an
5: hour. Three huge companies dominate. Alibaba, JD.com, and Pinduoduo, which combined account for almost 80% of the market.
7: The other thing about the Chinese market that's very interesting is that whereas we have like Google in search and we have Facebook in social media, Amazon in e-commerce and PayPal in payments, they've put it all together in single organizations. So they have entire ecosystems and many Chinese consumers live their entire lives in those ecosystems.
5: These super app ecosystems give the retailers intimate knowledge of exactly what their users like, want and buy.
6: And of course, all of this requires a huge amount of data. And the Chinese are much more willing at this point to allow uh, data tracking of everything that they do than many people are in the West.
5: With more direct insight into customer demands, retailers can maximize their margins and cut waste. Some Chinese tech firms are even using people's digital footprint to influence the way goods are produced, known as consumer to manufacturer.
7: That's really cutting out even the brands from the purpose. So the factories then start dealing directly with consumers and of course, can be flexing their production capacity uh, directly, depending on, on the consumer demand.
5: Western retailers are playing catch up. For years, they rested on their laurels, regarding the internet as secondary to the store. Not helped, perhaps, by the fact that they had sunk a lot of money into store space. America, for example, has 2.2 square meters of retail space for every single one of its inhabitants, six times the level of China. But Western retailers also missed a big trick, their customers' big data.
7: Retailers historically had very little data about their individual customers. They used to have store credit cards, that was about it. But the online companies had huge amounts, collected huge amounts of data about their customers. When you consider that against the, uh, the, what the retailers had, the retailers and traditional brands were really flying blind. And that is why the internet companies have beaten the incumbent retailers and brands for the most part over the last 20 years.
5: The pandemic was a death knell for many brands. 8,700 stores were closed by big chain retailers in America in 2020. But the companies that did harness the power of their consumers' data are thriving. Amazon exceeded $100 billion in quarterly sales for the first time ever in the last three months of 2020.
7: Amazon, of course, wrote the book on, on, on individual customer data and its uses. And of course, as they've got bigger and bigger and bigger, they've got more data than anybody else.
5: With its established logistical system and smooth purchasing process, Amazon may seem a useful online platform for brands to peddle their wares. But though Amazon passes on the sale to the brand, it doesn't pass on much of the customer's data, which means companies know very little about who is buying their products. So some brands are cutting the Amazon cord to focus on what's known as direct-to-consumer selling, such as Nike.
6: It decided to sell only online via the Nike website. Um, And uh, what it did then was it developed ways of keeping much closer tabs on its customers. For example, um, a membership program.
5: Nike's loyalty scheme allows it to create customer profiles of its 250 million members, 70 million of whom joined during the pandemic. Nike's apps offer the customer a personalized experience in return for a detailed insight into their behavior.
6: If you sign up to their app, Uh, you'll give them information about how much you run every day, what sports clubs you're doing, how much yoga you're doing, all that sort of stuff. And this helps inform Nike about what to produce. They're able to see where you are and that also informs the way they think about where to put their stores.
5: Nike's apps let users customize their own shoes, and in doing so, learn the customer's favorite colors and designs. And by tracking how far they've run, can even let the customer know when it's time to splash out on a new pair of shoes. You're sharing
6: your data and your intimacy with Nike. It all basically creates a more intimate bond between Nike and its
5: customers. As shopping shifted online, the pandemic sparked a greater need for this type of direct-to-consumer selling. Enter Shopify, an e-commerce platform which allows anyone to set up their own online store. The number of new stores set up in the first six weeks of the pandemic grew by more than 60% compared to the previous six weeks.
8: We saw Heinz ketchup within, I think, a week or two of COVID hitting, setting up a store on Shopify to sell Heinz at home in the UK. We saw Lindt Chocolate go direct to consumer for the first time.
5: Inspired by the Chinese model, Shopify aims to create an ecosystem which integrates e-commerce with social media.
8: Is what we're trying to do is simplify all of it, which want to make it a, an easy thing to do to have one centralized inventory and figure out which products should get pushed where. And if you're seeing traffic at your online store coming from Pinterest, we're going to tell you, you should activate the Pinterest channel and you should push product directly to Pinterest to better engage with that audience. But I think we're, we're just at the early stages of social commerce. And I think people are beginning to understand that there's a real opportunity here, not just to meet new brands, connect with new brands, but also to buy from those brands.
5: By being better connected to their customers, brands can work out not just what they want to buy, but where they want to shop. Take one of Shopify's merchants, the shoe company, Allbirds. During the pandemic, when many brands were shutting up shop, Allbirds was opening stores.
8: You hear terms like, well, offline and online are competing, and online is hurting offline. You would never hear that from all birds, because at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is create a great experience, build a great brand, and sell you great shoes. And however you purchase, whatever means or channels you utilize to do so, they're happy with. All those kind of feed into each other. The future retailers retail is retail everywhere. If you wanna to sell to my mom, you gotta have a great brick and mortar experience, because my mother prefers to buy that way. But my sister, who's in her early 20s, she is looking to purchase things on Instagram.
5: It means the store isn't dead. It would just be reimagined to provide an entirely new type of experience.
7: They're great for providing what we call brand theatre. They're great for providing a live experience uh, with the customer and to have expert um, sort of uh, stylist level staff who can really help the customer uh, in a way that the internet cannot.
5: Nike has adapted its stores to create a bespoke service for the customer thanks to the information on their digital profile and the store presents yet another channel to capture their data
6: in the midst of pandemic it opened a huge store in paris you go in and immediately it offers you interactive experiences it's mingling both online and offline data and the whole point is to make the experience of shopping at Nike more intimate, more direct and more kind of one-to-one.
5: In-store data can also help inform stock control, ensuring less waste in the supply chain, improving sustainability as well as profit margins. According to one recent estimate, the volume of data collected globally is expected to increase from 33 trillion gigabytes in 2018 to 175 trillion by 2025. This will be accompanied by rising concerns about privacy and exploitation of personal data.
6: It used to be the case that customers had to exhibit their loyalty to the store that they bought from. These days, it's the retailer that has to prove their loyalty to the shopper. And that loyalty really means looking after their data.
5: Retailers will know increasing amounts about customers' behaviour, habits and preferences. This may sit uncomfortably with some, but one thing is for sure, the inevitability that this retail revolution will be driven by your data.
6: I'm Henry Trix. I write the Schumpeter column at The Economist. You can read my special report on the future of shopping uh, uh, on the link opposite. Please don't forget to subscribe. And thanks for watching.
0: All right. So they mentioned a couple of good points about retail brick and mortar versus online. Um, You know, they said, well... The retailers, the brick-and-mortar retailers, they did not have a way to keep uh, tabs on what consumers were buying. They only had maybe the credit cards. But nowadays, as you know, retailers always ask you if you want a rewards card, not only to get rewards for what you buy, but that's also how they are trying to keep track of what you are buying and what is being bought. And how to adjust their inventory so it's just not for you to be loyal to their store it's also to keep tabs on what you're buying as well now you know there's certain stores I don't think I mean I know people have been buying beds in boxes you know getting that shipped to them but I mean how do you know if that's comfortable or not I mean you not want to go to a furniture store and lay on a bed to see if that's a mattress that will work for you. You're just gonna buy a box and a bed and hope for the best. I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think there's certain stores that are gonna still have to be available um, to people so that they. I mean, even a shoe store. Now, yes, granted, I have bought shoes online, and because if you know your shoe size, you pretty much should fit. Right. But, you know, if you're looking for a comfortable shoe, how do you know it's going to be comfortable? Well, you don't until you get it and then you find out it's not and you have to send it back and all that. But if you can go to a shoe store and walk around in the shoe, try it out, then you know for sure if it's comfortable for you or not. So I think there's just certain stores that, you know, you're not going to have to do away with and always order online. Um, but the malls are not going to have those kind of stores if they have those kind of stores you know because department stores are like that they had your shoe department and your furniture department everything all in sort of one and um, those are the things that are not competitive anymore for malls so it's the department stores like Sears and JCPenney Penney. And Macy's that are having a hard time keeping their doors open in malls and malls used to depend on those uh, these uh, department stores to keep their doors open. Now they have to either depend on small stores keeping up with their rent or they're gonna have to make a change into another direction. And so here's this article. This appeared in US News and World Report, but this was actually written locally by Megan Thomasic from the Tribune Review. It's entitled Malls Look Toward Rocky Future Following Pandemic. This was written in May twenty three May twenty-third, twenty twenty. And She goes on to say, America's once dazzling shopping industry is facing blow after blow as department stores anchoring malls across the country file for bankruptcy, a move that could leave already struggling shopping malls permanently in the dark. Sales have plummeted with a record 16% drop in retail sales for April 2020, in large part as stores have been closed for months to help curb the spread of the coronavirus that has left shopping malls to face the grim reality of empty storefronts and late or non-existent rent payments many could be forced to explore a new future focused on entertainment so that's pretty much what they're saying these uh these uh malls are going to have to go to in order to stay in existence and that that would be entertainment she goes on to say, locally, several malls watched stores close before the coronavirus. Westmoreland Mall in Hempfield has had at least 13 closures over the past few years, including Anchors, Sears, and Bonton. A mini casino was built inside the former Bonton space. So there is your, that's your form of entertainment was the mini casino instead of putting another restaurant or department store in there. Uh, She goes on to say, Pittsburgh Mills Mall in Fraser learned this month it will lose Cinemark Theater. One of its anchor tenants, Philip Paluzzi, an upscale Pittsburgh-based hair salon in Petland, left the mall last year. If the mall is unable to find another entertainment-based anchor tenant, there is a high chance it could close. Since lockdowns started in March, the changing landscape for malls anchored by department stores and filled with national change came to fruition when about 263,250 stores temporarily shuttered during the peak of the virus, leaving most with plummeting sales, according to global data. Recent research from Green Street Advisors, a real estate research firm, shows that over 50% of department stores anchoring malls across the country will close within the next two years, fast-tracking disruptions that have been expected to take five to six years to play out. As department store profits continue to fall, malls themselves are left reeling as economic impacts from the virus become more visible. Chattanooga, Tennessee-based CBL Properties, which owned Westmoreland and Moroville Malls, has implemented changes to help stay afloat throughout the pandemic. Um, they scrapped plans for $60 million to $80 million worth of maintenance capital expenditures and redevelopments. About 60% of its workforce, or about 300 people, were furloughed and executives took a cut in pay. And as we know from the article that I read earlier... Uh, About, what, six months later, five months later, they also filed Chapter 11. Uh, In Indianapolis, Uh, The Indianapolis-based Simon Property Group, which owns Ross Park Mall in Ross, Grove City, Premium Outlets in Mercer County, and South Hills Village in Bethel Park, announced the suspension or elimination of more than $1 billion in redevelopment and new development projects. They also borrowed about $3.75 billion. Business and shoppers at malls will rebound, though only temporary is the prediction. A three month resurgence will give way to slower foot traffic, leaving malls in a position similar to where many of them were months ago before the pandemic. Places like Westmoreland Mall will recover. The movie theater at Moreauville Mall and high end retailers at Ross Park Mall will allow them to survive. It seems major department stores won't be the anchors in malls anymore. Several facilities like Westmoreland Mall. We're refocusing on entertainment like the mini casino before the pandemic. So there you go. I mean, uh, I guess, um, you know, maybe things like Dave and Buster's, if they went into malls, you know, that's a form of entertainment and it's an eatery. Um, So things like that, more restaurants. Uh, maybe that could be a thing that keeps the malls open because I know a lot of people also like to use the malls as their walking uh, exercise, right? In inclement weather, they like to go to the mall and walk around and maybe, uh, visit stores that they're interested in. But, uh, if they don't keep their doors open, that won't be available anymore. So let's go to our last audio of the show this is the future of shopping how COVID has changed what and how we buy this was posted by Michael McQueen let's see what he has to say
9: well, it's safe to say the pandemic has changed how we shop and what we buy. Consumers and companies have been forced to do things a little differently, haven't they? In-store catalogues have been swapped for QR codes. Buying groceries is now a voice command away, and the e-commerce has made cash almost extinct.
10: So with everything from drone deliveries to robot-driven stock take, and even TikTok shopping becoming normal. What does the brave new future of retail actually look like?
9: For more, we're joined by futurist and author Michael McQueen. Good day, Michael. Good morning. Well, Let's talk about how we shop. You say we're going to see the rise of dark stores. Yeah, it's an interesting La- notion. Larry's eh? already quite familiar with, with, a, with a dark store. What's a dark store? store? What? Seriously, what well, so are they? A
11: dark store is a bit like a ghost restaurant. Have you heard that term before? No. Okay, so ghost restaurants are the restaurants that don't open to customers. They just produce food for Uber Eats and delivery to deliver to people's oh, homes. So right. dark stores are sort of the same. So the idea is they're only really in existence to process online orders. Like a warehouse. Like basically a warehouse. So Macy's have converted four of their big stores in the US to dark stores in the last four months because they've had so many people go online during COVID, they need the capacity and space to process the online orders.
10: So shut down the the bricks and mortar operation using the space as
11: warehouse. Put
9: the curtains up and just have people in there ferreting away
10: stacking
9: boxes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that's what it is. Yeah. Right? JK
10: Rowling, it was quite yeah. a simple proposition. We're also witnessing the rise of social media commerce. Many businesses now selling products directly on platforms yeah. like Facebook and even TikTok, we were surprised to hear.
11: Yeah, TikTok's the one to really watch. So all the kids are on TikTok, so Gen Z, that's where they hang out. And what's interesting is TikTok about four months ago did a, a tie-up with Shopify, which means you can now sell on Shopify, but within the TikTok app. So what it means is if you see a video... With a product, you can click on it and buy that product within TikTok without leaving it, which is massive. Wow! And uh, they've also done a tie-up with Walmart, so you can do the same thing for Walmart products on TikTok. So So if
9: we're looking at this, that sweater that that guy's wearing, he put a little you know, something on, an icon on it and you can shop. That's the idea, yeah. Through, so it's been it happening through.
11: in China for years but they've just started to crack it in the West oh, and it's going to be a really big good. one to watch.
9: Let's yeah. talk about facial recognition and supermarket fridges.
11: Yeah, so this is an interesting one. So this actually was trialled at Walgreens stores, which is a big pharmacy chain in the US, about 18 months ago. So basically the refrigerator door changes what is advertised on it based on the person sitting in front. So it identifies, it doesn't identify you in terms of your actual Identity, that but a
9: fungal cream. Yeah, so Larry <laughs> walks up, and it brings up, you know, the tinnier cream. with well, that—that's sort you of. So what
11: happens? Well, so this is only for drinks. You'll be glad to know. Oh, okay, right, right, so, right. Right. so well, fireball. The, I mean, but
9: it might get
11: there. Who knows? But it's like a Minority Report. If you remember that movie, mm. like the other is as you walk past the refrigerator, it figures out your age and your gender, and will only display what it thinks will be relevant to you. So I'm guessing 90 year olds won't be promoted like mother drinks, for instance. Like, but what? that's the idea. It's all about like personalising the experience. It's a bit. Creepy. The personalising experience. So you're not promoted irrelevant products when you're in store. Oh,
10: that's got bad day out written all over it. Hasn't <laughs> it?
9: It's more mylanter than mother. <laughs> yeah,
10: yeah, yeah. Uh, now you say the future will be cashier-free. Yeah. Does that mean the cashier at Aldi won't be throwing suey at me at 15 per second? Correct. That, right. Okay.
11: Mm. Probably Aldi will be a bit slow to the table, but we're also Coles and Woolies are already trialling this stuff. But the, yeah. the trailblazers are Amazon. So the Amazon Go concept stores have been open for about four years. They decided in November last year they want to roll this out across their entire whole foods network in the US so I mean the number of whole food stores is staggering so they want to have cashiers moved out of stores within the next four to five years and the technology behind this is pretty crazy so we'll probably see this this as a trend in the next few years but a counter trend is there's a Dutch supermarket chain that want to develop and this sounds horrifying to me because I hate lining up to pay stuff a chat checkout so the chat checkout is designed to move really slowly so if you want to have a chat to the person behind the register, so you can take as long oh, as you like. a stupid idea!
9: Oh, that, that will never work. Oh.
11: yeah. So it's going to be interesting. We'll see both the okay. two extremes play out. So the
10: first thing, when you were talking about cashier-free, Colin yeah. and I were going, "Thank goodness, no more hair and makeup in the supermarket." Mm-hmm. Then you introduced the chat line.
11: The chat, now all, check all of a out. sudden, oh, I'm
9: back in the makeup. <laughs> Let's discuss delivery vans. Are now bring the whole store to you, not just a single item.
11: Yeah. So RoboMart are the ones that are doing that. So West Hollywood is where they're trialling this right now. They're actually bringing a whole store to you that you can then pick and pack from, completely <laughs> driverless. Okay you <laughs> But probably the delivery thing is like a big most, vending machine on work. Like a big vending machine, basically. So, this may will catch on. It's a little bit early to know if it's going to catch on. But in the delivery space, drones are really exciting and interesting. So, Amazon actually got the green light in October last year to start delivering to your home using a drone. And there are a couple of other companies doing cool stuff, even robotic deliveries. Seven when will states, we see this in Australia? We can do this. Um, so, Australia are actually doing some cool stuff in drone technology trials in Canberra. We've spent the last two years doing this. In fact, the world watched Canberra and what we did in that regard. So, we'll probably see it here before many. Other countries, but yes, yeah. yeah, certainly the drone delivery stuff is is one to watch.
9: What are they delivering? Like in the trials, like delivering
11: what? parcels. Now they actually trialled in Canberra delivering fast food, which got awkward because they dropped a few burritos on people's houses. <laughs> I believe
10: it's raining burritos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh
11: that's, that's
9: another dream sequence. Yeah, for yeah, that yeah.
10: Really. it is. Okay, great to see you. Thanks for all. That. Likewise, thanks. That's
0: Good stuff. stuff,
9: isn't it?
0: Oh, wow. That it was interesting. I mean, I could never imagine them bringing a whole store to you <laughs> wherever you are. I mean, honestly, I am the kind of person that I always hated shopping. Even before um, these, you know, online platforms became available, uh, I would never. I mean, I, it really took a lot for me to get to the store. And I don't like grocery shopping either, but you had to do it. And so I, now I spend probably a lot more money than I used to because now I'm on these online platforms like Amazon and stuff. So the malls closing really do not make me all that sad. But, you know, maybe other people, uh, because it could be in a social uh, experience as well, not just the buying experience. You go there with your friends and just kind of browse the stores, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's it's probably part of that too. And But unfortunately, the mall's uh, stores can't keep their doors open on uh, people's social experience unless they do something like open a mini casino. Now, they also mentioned uh, bringing a whole store to you. I mean, I don't know. How do you feel about that? You're going to have to go ahead and email me at report at gmail.com. Uh, if you want me to know how you feel, what, what would you feel if a whole van, like a store, came to you and you could just peruse through the items, et cetera, et cetera. So email me at report at gmail.com or I'm on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and uh, on Twitter at CRR in McKeeSport. because I think that's kind of interesting you know I don't think again I still wouldn't want to do that I think I still like shopping through the online platforms uh, you know just I have in my mind what I need I go there I search for it and voila there it is right all right, so if you have any comments or any questions on anything you've heard on the show today, you can contact me at consumerreviewreport@gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you have any ideas of any products or services or subjects consumer issue related that you would like to hear on the show, you can also contact me at ConsumerReviewReport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at ConsumerReviewReport and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So... Again, we deal with consumer issues. You can tune in today, Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at 6 p.m., and Thursdays at 9 a.m. to hear anything uh, consumer issue related if you are interested. All right. So this is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc., and again, this show is heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at 6 p.m., and Thursday at 9 a.m. Podcasts of these shows are also available on WMCK.FM slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. It could be available on other uh, other uh, platforms as well. I'm just not sure. But those are forms you can definitely hear this podcast on. So I'm Diane Rebecca wishing everyone a safe and good week.